<laughs> you ever had the feeling that the most bombastic of all announcers in the world are sport announcers? Did you ever hear that one guy's name Howard something? Who keeps it on? No, sport fans, big number 13, Ralph Ranka and Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali, if you prefer that name. The thrills and all. Oh, wow. Anybody else try that stuff, they get laughed off the stage. Very good. Oh, boy. All right, that's, uh, that's all set, sport fans. Hey, you know, speaking of sport, uh, I am walking through this uh, record shop the other day, see? And you never know when you're going to run into your own life. You just don't. You never know when you're going to run into the fun mirror, you know, the, the, the mirror that they have out of Coney Island, that fun mirror, and you see yourself reflected all distorted and fat or skinny or 48 feet tall or three inches high, all that, you know. Oh, by the way, speaking of 48 inches tall and three inches high, uh, I'm watching the other day on television, and I'm seeing the scientist, and he's giving a report on uh, this uh, machine that they shot up to the moon, you know? Uh, what's the name of that machine again? Uh, yeah, Surveyor One. And uh, that's a great name, by the way, for it. Surveyor One. And uh, somehow that little machine is practically human. And it really is. You, you feel a little sense of compassion for it. It's a little bit of us up there. Yeah, it winks its eyes and moves around and looks down at its feet. And it does all the stuff that ordinary people do, you know? It does. You see about that? It takes a picture of its foot, you know, to let you know how things are up there. And uh, um, uh, this, the scientist is, uh, is describing what the uh, uh, Surveyor 1 did. And I was suddenly struck by the, the, uh, the scientific ease. Uh, now, that's not E-A-S-E. That's E-S-E. Science ease. That these guys describe the most... Nothing situation is described in fantastic scientific terms. And so this guy is standing up before all the reporters, uh, thousands of reporters, and, and uh, the MC of the show, it's a big scientist, and they're evaluating what Surveyor 1 has done. You probably saw on a television, see? And uh, the man who's going to introduce the next speaker, all these various guys were experts in different fields, you see. First they had the guy that was the expert in the color Films. They had the guy that was the expert in the uh, astronomy department and the one who was an expert in the geological aspects of the moon. And then they called up this guy and he says, Now uh, uh, we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Ignatius Watanabe. Uh, Dr. Watanabe is an expert on the ballistics and the logistical situation regarding Surveyor 1. Uh, he will tell you uh, about uh, how the flight was actually made and how the uh, Surveyor 1 actually arrived at the moon. And here he is, Dr. Ignatius Watanabe. Brack. Brump, thank you. The first problem we had, of course, we had a face. That was a problem. Uh, one of the problems we had a face uh, was when uh, Surveyor 1 uh, uh, arrived at the point of contact with the surface of the target. You notice he doesn't say the moon. The surface of the target, the emission... Uh, uh, began to be interesting in my department when we noticed that uh, Surveyor 1, upon making contact with the target, rose vertically 
We figure about two and a half millimeters rose vertically, and then uh, once again it uh, descended vertically. It rose vertically again a, a millimeter and a half. What he is saying is it bounced when it hit. That's exactly what he's saying. And I, and I said that for a minute. What, what do you mean it rose vertically and came down went vertically? And I, I'm trying to sort this out in my mind. And I'm shaving while this is going on. So I'm, he's saying it bounced. <laughs> and, you know, it bounced. That when it landed on the moon, it went boom. And then went boom, 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 boom. boom. Well... This guy had charts and graphs about the bounce. See, he went on and on and on. And now, uh, descended vertically. At that point, the uh, the vertical the uh, vertical velocity ceased, and the uh, vertical horizontal velocity ceased. And at that point, we re realized, as we were watching on the multiple dipole semi elliptical uh, oscillograph uh, charting device. Which we use. Uh, would you please put slide number three on, please? Turn the lights down. We can't resist slides. Slide number three. There we have a picture here of our graph. And uh, at that point, we'll notice that the graph crossed a zero coordinate uh, with the multiple dipole of the x and y axis. At that point, we uh, made the notation of zero vertical movement. He's saying it stopped. I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I just wanted one guy to say, wasn't it fantastic, that little thing up there? They, they just don't talk like that. They're all involved in the in scientific ease. And, and, you know, this is beginning to creep into all different areas where deadpan, dead-faced people sit and pour over long, involved charts about something which is basically totally understandable, and not only understandable, but is somewhat laughable. In its own right. One of the saddest things I've seen recently are these two scientific type people. This man and this lady. Very serious looking people. And the lady's got short hair and the man's got long hair. And he's got thin glasses and she's got thick glasses. And they both have long, thin, kind of uh, ascetic looking noses. They have just written a fantastically long, involved book on the techniques of sex. And and uh, they had yeah they had this whole long thing where they had the, the the mirrors and all that where they're sitting in there making notes and they're watching all this going on so they had seven hundred people did you know about that they had seven hundred volunteers see <laughs> well all right okay uh, I suppose that's one way to get to be a peeping tom uh, if you can get a Ford Grant to do it you're in business but. <laughs> And the saddest part of it all is that they wrote this long, deadpan, absolutely dull book about everything that even the cavemen knew. Uh, and I suppose, uh, I suppose uh, this is what is beginning to happen in science. I have a feeling that science is going the way that philosophy one time went, and philosophy and theology went. And as a matter of fact, it was at the point when, the, uh, when, when uh, philosophy and theology began to disappear when they had finally arrived at the point where they were literally counting the number of angels that danced on the head of a pin. And you know, this argument went on for hundreds of years. <laughs> it did. When we laugh, when we say how many angels dance, do you know that at one point that was a very serious argument, a very long, serious argument, and guys in major universities sat around and charted and graphed and all that stuff. And what, they had, what had happened was that they had lost the point literally uh, lost the point. I suppose you can make a little pun about that in, in reference to a pin and all that, but they had actually lost the point of religion, and now we're involved 
in little esoteric debates that had nothing whatsoever to do with what religion was about or what philosophy was about or life itself was about. And incidentally, religion and philosophy are purportedly about life. If you've ever tried to wade through even the most minor philosophical treatise, you will realize that philosophy has long since departed from life and has become a series of mathematical equations that bear absolutely no relationship to a guy walking along 6th Avenue sweating. None whatsoever. And if you ever try to bring that up in a classroom, you'd be laughed right out into the hall, I'll tell you, by old Professor Carruthers who's got the wall and the board covered with quadratic equations and charts and graphs. It's that, kind of, it's that kind of retreat from reality which science gives us. It's become a kind of religion. And watching that man up there saying, I'm the vertical... Now, I'm sure that I'm going to get 45 letters from guys who are in that same bag who are going to say to me, well, that shows you don't understand what they're talking about, of course. <laughs> that uh, uh, it was very important to know that it rose because they want to know about the surface of the moon and all that. That is not the point. The point is that that the involved circumlocution, the uh, involved terminology bears very much uh, uh, the semblance of the beginnings of a kind of decay in the world of science uh, where... Uh, where the the, uh, the the I should say even the philosophy and the vocabulary of philosophy and theology at one point began to show a decay until finally it did it just the roof fell in now I'm sure that if you had, had jumped up in a classroom at in the days in the in the philosophical world where they were counting the number of angels that dance on the head of the pin and you said what has that got to do with good or evil or bad or what or uh, you know, or the Ten Commandments, or whether a man should hit another guy in the mouth. What's this guy? He would have been thrown right out because he doesn't understand, obviously. My thesis is that the guy who is counting the angels on the head of a pin doesn't understand. Uh, if he does understand, he's long since left that in the, in the, you know, he's departed from that scene. And so this, uh, this dancing angel thing is always with us. And, you know, I, I, uh, I wonder about, about literature, for example. Literature today uh, bears, as we know now, very little relationship to any known life that is lived. Uh, and I'm not, to, I'm not calling for reality uh, in literature. I'm calling for reason and meaning in literature. Uh, in fact, it, it had gotten to the point... Uh, there, are, there are many apostles of this, you know. Uh, there are apostles of, of form over meaning. There are very strong apostles of this. That, uh, that, the, uh, that the form of the equation of a philosopher counting the number of angels dancing on the head of the pin is far more important than its meaning. Uh, you find the Susan Sontags of the world, believe me, who, who, uh, who believe that the form of a novel is much more important than whether it says anything or not. In fact, if it says something, that is considered to be a kind of breaking of the rules of, of the form Philosophy, in other words, if you have, if you believe so much in form, that uh, there is a slight tinge, in fact, a, a very strong tinge of rule breaking, if you deviate from pure form for form's sake and somehow make a swipe at content, and so op art is a classical example of form over content, where form is all, content is zero. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not against uh, content. Because, you know, you, the, the, there's no question about it that form itself, by itself, is pleasant. 
uh, just like a mathematical equation by itself. If you're mathematical, and I happen to, at one point, be deeply involved in mathematics, I had to be because of, uh, of the work that I was involved in at one point uh, in school and, and also in the Army, that uh, it is a pleasant thing to, to, uh, to contemplate mathematics as a pure science. It's a pure form. It's beautiful, and, and uh, there's no question about it, because it's unsullied by such things as good or evil or meaning. It has a beauty of its own. And uh, this uh, has begun to creep into other forms where, I might point out, uh, form bears very little relationship to reality. In short, form in sex means nothing, friend. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. This is why these guys write this long book. Uh, why this involved uh, treaties on form. Uh, it had no, 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 uh, no relationship to meaning, content, one thing and another. That, ha that bears on the original function of what sex is about. Just as in the case of, of almost any other life experience, that the original experience, the original impact of an experience, I suspect that this is what could be called uh, the maturation process. Uh, unfortunately, many people, as they mature, become more involved with form than in content. Because ultimately they forget. It's because too much experience can often lead you to forget what it's all about. Uh, have you ever tried to talk baseball, the beauty of baseball, with a sports writer? It's almost impossible. He is so close to sports and to baseball that he's much more interested in who's holding out for what. Have you noticed that almost all the sport pages today seem to be concerned with uh, uh, whether or not this league is going to merge with that league? whether or not this ball player is getting this much money, whether that ball player is going to be traded to this. Very little writing at all about the beauty of baseball or a beautiful play or a, uh, they may once in a while talk about a home run, but they hardly ever talk about that moment when, when Roy McMillan goes deep back into the, into the very depths of shortstop, way back in the outfield grass, makes a, makes a backhanded grab and then a low, spinning, rising throw to first base, which is the beauty of baseball. You hardly ever see that on the sport page. I'll tell you why. Because the sports writer didn't see it. You know where he was at the time that happened? He was down in the clubhouse, down in the basement of Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium, wherever the play occurred. And he was talking to other writers who had just come in from Kansas City about a big trade that was in the wind or whether or not uh, Charlie Owner DeWitt is about to sell to somebody named Harold Fignoten. That's where he was at that moment. Are you, do you know that? I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I'm being very serious about it. Uh, this is true in my business, in radio and television. Very few times have I ever run into somebody in the halls in a radio or television station who's involved in radio and TV. Have I run into the halls and somebody said, Shepard, that was a great show you did the other night. They will talk about whether the commercials were on loud enough, or they will talk about whether I gave the cues right, or whether they were cut off at the end, or anything like that. Rarely do I ever hear anybody discuss a show. Rarely. Again, it's because when you get too specialized, you wind up forgetting what the point of it was. Totally. Uh, I happen to have had at one time in my life, I had a little acquaintance with Dr. Kinsey. There was an example. <laughs> he was a mathematics major, a geneticist, turned loose in the field. He had absolutely no sense of, of, of the poetry of what he was involved in. Uh, speaking of losing the point of things, this is WOR AM and FM New York. You have a little button to hit, hit it there, Dad.
and tradition, a bright, clear taste, unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging, available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. The champagne of bottled beer. You see, George didn't have much push. He wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was sort of a flop. A great, big, fat flop. I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. Not on your salary. Not on an associate professor's salary. So here I am, stuck with this Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton. The motion picture, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Also starring George Siegel and Sandy Dennis. Remember, no one under 18 will be admitted to the theater unless accompanied by his parents. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? From Wonder Brothers. Yeah, it sounds like good, clean fun. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Starts tomorrow at the Criterion and the Lowe's Tower East Theaters. You just gotta make it. Let's see, we have a note here from Woolmouth. The whole bit about the summer suits. Let's see. You know, I'll guarantee you that I'll be getting the summer suit announcement well into January. It's a fact. You know that, that uh, well into uh, June, uh, we were still getting winter suit spots. And uh, th that's talking talking about the head of the pin. Let's see, Wilma, tired of men's summer suits that look like rotten old, crummy, rumsprung potato sacks? Well, uh, Woolmouth will, uh, they're America's leading made-to-measure menswear specialist. Uh, they'll, they'll put you a full season ahead of ready-made summer suits that were styled last winter. You can choose the lapels, the shaped waist, the high twin hacking vents. What the heck is a hacking vent? Does that have to do with riding hacking vents? That's a joke. Anyway, you can hacking vents on your coat. Uh, this is Wilmoth. W-O-H-L-M-U-T-H. It's listed in your telephone directory under Taylor's, and they really do give you a genuine value for your clothing buck. That's Wilmoth. They're listed under Taylor's, and there's shops all over the area. Manhattan, all around. Manhattan, Queens, Long Island, Brooklyn, every place in the Bronx, up in Jersey and everything. W-O-H-L-M-U-T-H. Wilmoth. And let's see, we have one more note here for Rover, 2000. I'm delighted to report that uh, almost every time I go out on a highway, I see more and more Rover 2000s, and for good reason. This is a great automobile, and I don't use that word uh, in the advertising sense. This is a car which is being studied by automotive designers all over the world because into it went some of the greatest design techniques and ideas of any car in the past 15 or 20 years. 
This is the Rover 2000, and because you have never heard of the Rover, does not mean that it's not great. Uh, Americans have that myth going with them, and I can I can uh, give you about 400 different watches, for example, that you've never heard of that are great watches. Uh, the Rover 2000 TC is a car that is roughly five years ahead of the automotive world today. And if you'd like to see pictures of it and technical descriptions and so on, we'll send them along. And no, no salesman will arrive with it, by the way. They're not going to use this list to send a little short, fat guy with a cigar to bang on your door. Uh, just send your name and address to Rover here at WOR, and we'll ship it out to you, okay? Do you want, you, you, you want to continue with that, uh, that peculiar kind of discussion? You know, uh, I, I've seen this everywhere. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you, sad little note. Uh, I suppose I shouldn't be saying these things out of, out of context. But I met a guy the other day who's in, in uh, radio and television, and I met him on the street corner, and we got talking. And uh, very shortly, very quickly, our, our talk deteriorated into a kind of an argument. And the argument was an argument that you rarely hear ever discussed outside of the halls of radio and television. And in fact, you rarely even hear it in these halls. And that is, what is radio and television for? What is it for? Well, I'm afraid that there is a growing belief and a growing, oh, well, it's, it's actually an operating uh, philosophy that what it is for is to sell stuff. There's no question about it. I, mean, I, may, I may be biting the hand that feeds me, but this is what they feel, that it's to sell things. And uh, if along the way, while they're selling things, they can do a few good things too, that's so much the better. But that is, you know, that's, that's just one of the byproducts. In other words, doing something that has any imagination, any ingenuity, any value or any worth to it is a byproduct of the actual function of radio and television, which is to sell things. That's the function of the business. The function. And uh, if along the line you have to put a little news on to justify your existence, you'll do that. But if the news gets in the way of selling things, you notice that many radio stations today have only got like eight-second newscasts. They'll come up, boop, 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 boop. And now here's the news flash. Vietnam. Boop, 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 boop. And now back to Charlie Brown and the top ten. They, they go right back. That uh, they, they, Of course, what's happening is that the news, which is an actual reflection of the world around you, continues to impinge on your original function, which is to sell stuff. So if you can cut the news down to one word, you'd be way ahead of the game. You know that there are, there are guys today who are specialists in writing an entire newscast in two sentences. Yeah. That, 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 that this is one of the new talents that is making his way in this business. And, oh, yeah. Have you ever heard any of these rock and roll stations? Believe me, Dad, that news that they put on there, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's like a secret magic ingredient that comes on uh, every uh, 30 minutes or maybe every hour. They're boop, 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 and that's it. That's the weather for you. That's the weather, the news, the Vietnam, the world situation, Washington, the whole thing in one eight-and-a-half-second blat. And it ain't easy to do that. Well, that's uh, that's uh, part and portion, really, of the function versus form 
and form versus function, reason for being versus uh, form versus, uh, again, ultimate function. And so, unfortunately, in our business, most people look upon it now today as, uh, as a means of selling the product. In fact, you pick up the average uh, uh, copy of the trade journal of radio or television, and it is all full of what various ad agencies are planning to do, what campaigns Listerine is going to start, what the big thing that Wrigley Gum is about to do, and so on. Very little discussion ever about anything to do with a program, <laughs> unless it happens to be a sponsor who's bought a program, and then the whole talk is about what the sponsor's doing on that program and how well it's sold or what kind of a rating it got. So uh, this is part of the... And I'm not, I'm not just lashing out against our world. I'm not lashing against our... Uh, the automobile industry is showing now... It's beginning to suffer from that. You know, for years, the automobile industry thought that its function was to, was to sell cars. Its function was not to design great automobiles or create a transportation system. It was to sell cars. Well, since the average person knows very little about an automobile, but he knows a lot about what he likes, uh, ultimately, the cars were really designed by little fat guys with vests. Uh, buyers, in short, uh, with with large ladies with flowered print dresses who only worried about whether they could get their knee in the door easy. That was the way a car was bought. Or whether the upholstery went with uh, with Maud's yellow complexion. Uh, and so, ultimately, they really designed the car. Well, now, now everybody is yelling like mad at the automobile industry, and rightfully so. Ultimately, they're getting their comeuppance now uh, because... Uh, uh, the accident rates began to rise, one thing and another, and people began to say, well, gee, maybe it isn't all the bad drivers. Maybe it could be that I'm really driving a deflated beach ball. Maybe that's what the problem is. When poor old Aunt Frances didn't make that turn when she was going 22 miles an hour and she sailed 348 yards past the poplar grove, maybe it could have been the car and not necessarily Aunt Frances. Maybe it was a combination. But the point is that for years, hardly anybody ever talked much about what is the function of an automobile. Well, it's to travel at a very high rate of speed. <laughs> it's to carry four or five warm bodies at a high rate of speed over a surface that may be flat, may not be. It may be a straight line, it may not be a straight line. But it is uh, the function of that thing is to travel at a, at a, at a lethal rate of speed as safely as possible. Well, we lost a lot of what the function was about. You notice they don't talk much about that even today in ads. They'll talk about this safety feature and that safety feature. But rarely do they discuss the automobile as a transportation machine. They talk about it as a sex machine. It's very exciting sexually. They talk about it as a machine of excitement. Almost all ads say, oh, boy, do you want to really ride, get, a, get to be part of the new go-go world, the new exciting, you'll be a tiger. Boy, the minute you finish. They don't talk much about whether or not it's going to get you to the A&P. Uh, th that, uh, that's barely mentioned. It may not, you know, in all part of that go-go world. You may find yourself up among the top of the telephone poles, you know, spinning over and over uh, <laughs> with the sound of rending metal on the way. But that's part of losing function and form. That goes right back to the original Sontag world. It's okay when you're dealing with paintings. I don't care. I don't mind it. I mean, let them, let them lose function, form, and so on. Let them, let them get all, all involved in form. 
in the world of paintings. That's okay. That's not going to hurt anybody. But it is a reflection of a general attitude, you see. Art always reflects an attitude that is really genuine. Have you noticed that the, I think, and I, and I continue to say this even though it's not popular, that I think one of the reasons Johnson is not liked by large numbers of people with taste and sensibility is that his form is not good. Johnson is not a beautiful, handsome man with curly, wavy hair who speaks in a clipped, magnificently schooled accent of the eastern seaboard, which is what we consider good form. And I'm sorry, his form is bad. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I suspect this is the reason why large numbers of people don't like him. You've probably heard this theory promulgated before, but I think there's truth in it. There may be other reasons, too, but I think this is one of the basic reasons that's hardly ever understood by the very people who developed a great hatred for him. Uh, and I think this is, is part of that problem. I think Harry Truman suffered from that, too. Truman didn't have the proper form. And uh, he kept saying the wrong words, like, give him hell. You know, this is uh, not the kind of thing that a man of sensibility uh, might say. He would say, perhaps, if he wanted to say the same thing, we will give them an excruciating time. So that's better. That's better form, you see. Uh, and so, so form and function is, is a very big problem in our time, uh, whether or not... Uh, it'll be a crucial. I think ultimately it will be a crucial one. Of course, you realize this is this is part of the of the general decline. In fact, uh, our nation is an example of that. That the, we have mottos on our coins. Very few people really, uh, you know, it really doesn't mean much to the people. Just take a look at the coin. What does the motto say? Well, as a, as an actual fact, we know that that motto is an empty motto today. Because most people really don't believe in what the motto claims that we do believe in. On the other hand, uh, and I'm not advocating belief in that or not. I'm merely saying that this is where form and function collide continually. Where you keep the form and the function goes out the window. You know that there are hundreds and hundreds of churches today who have nothing to do with religion. Absolutely nothing. They're, they're kind of social centers. And there, there are places where the ball team is formed, where you get together and you have the barbecue. And there's this nice young man with the wavy hair who gets up and talks about such great things as concern. And he, he uses words like understanding. He uses words that have very little relationship to daily life. If the average minister today ever started to talk about the real problems that are going on, he'd be kicked out of his church in 20 minutes. As long as you can couch it in general terms... We must learn to develop. We must appreciate the other man's point of view. As I say, and I have said many times before, as I look at the scriptures, it says, Love thy fellow man. And, of course, he's talking to an all-white audience. They don't relate it to... It doesn't have much to do with, with uh, integration. It has to do with form. It has to do with talk, really. Uh, you find this is beginning to impinge even on daily life today. Have you noticed that, that the Bond, James Bond, is a classical example of form and function? That, that, that when Bond kills somebody, the act of killing somebody is not the act of killing somebody. It's an exciting act. Period. That, that, uh, that, the, that the sight of the body writhing on the floor with the blood spewing out over the wall-to-wall -wall carpet hardly ever gets into that... Uh, multicolored widescreen image of James Bond plugging somebody in the gut. Uh, 
uh, or, uh, in short, it is the act which we're much more interested in rather than the eventual goal of the act. And so Bond shoots somebody down, and that's the end of it. He walks away. Nobody ever has to come in and clean up the mess. You never see the guys in the white coats come and with the baskets after he has plugged this chick at uh, maybe a foot and a half range with a uh, with a thirty-eight snub-nosed <laughs> dum-dum bullet, which, by the way, he often uses. Have you ever seen what they do? Well, again, that's that's the form and function problem. Uh, or am I making myself clear, or am I not clear? Maybe I'm not clear in my own mind. Maybe that's it. Now, on the other hand, have you ever noticed that and it, uh, I think one of the great successes of the Bond movies has been that uh, the form has taken total precedence over function. That uh, people go to the Bond movies uh, just to enjoy form totally. And, and for that reason, since we do have a form society, all the things that Bond is involved in are the things which secretly and subconsciously we ourselves find repellent or at least one level of us finds repellent. The other level finds enjoyable. Let's face it, man is a killing animal. All you have to do is go to history, and you'll find that out. I don't care whether you think you aren't or not. We're talking about capital M-A-N. All present company, all listeners listening at this point, of course, exempted. Uh, <laughs> that's why, why you have to always exempt everybody, because he always immediately gets mad and says, no, I'm not a killer. We're talking about mankind. Naturally, you aren't a killer. You're a beautiful, pure human being. That's what you are. Uh, you're not part of mankind. We understand that. But uh, nevertheless, I hope you got my irony there. So I have to explain that. But uh, ultimately, we, we find that man is a killing animal. But yet he doesn't want to kill. He thinks he doesn't want to kill. So Bond involves himself with all of those things. Uh, he kills without so much as a backward glance. And as a matter of fact, if you notice that almost invariably after Bond kills, he smiles. He has enjoyed it. Well, now, in real life, uh, you've got problems if you do that. Uh, if you kill somebody with your car, you run them down on 6th Avenue, and then you smile after you do it. You are in trouble. Well, Bond isn't. So I think Bond, as a surrogate for all of us, I think Bond, the fantastic success of Bond, is a lot of things that came together which ultimately say that form is more, impo more important than function or meaning or content, at least uh, at this time in history. Other societies have gone that way, you know. One of the best examples of that is the society that uh, Gibbon wrote about, where ultimately the, uh, the form, of, you can see it in their architecture, too. You can see it in, in many different areas. You see it all, it's all one big thing. It isn't, you can't separate life from architecture and life from painting, movies. People who say they're just going to those movies because, quote, they're fun, are saying a great deal about themselves, whether they know it or not, whether they want to admit it or not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, a man sitting on the edge of a, of a, uh, of a pool in Rome uh, a few uh, decades before it finally plunged into the sea forever sitting there saying, well, I'm just here to see what goes on at these orgies. I'm not here really part of this scene. <laughs> was, uh, was not fooling anybody. He certainly didn't fool Gibbon. He might have fooled a few people who sat around him with togas and downed the, the grapes and chased the Nubian handmaidens around the pool. But he wasn't, fooling, uh, he wasn't fooling history. Now, you may fool history yourself, and I think we all are in one way or another. 
But ultimately, history is not fooled. That history will write about it. And, uh, and so the, the, uh, the form and function, a thing often, a thing genuinely starts out meaning one thing. It winds up in pure form. This is the classical decline. Uh, you can see it in, in, the, in the American democracy, the classical decline. That, uh, that in, uh, in the 1700s, when the American democracy was conceived, it was conceived in a very different way. Uh, it was thought of in very different terms. And it was thought of in far realer terms, for example, than we ourselves today think of the term democracy. You can see it on all sides. It's fascinating to see a man, say, for example, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who claims he believes in democracy, but he also believes in segregation. Uh, now, that would seem to be a, a total... Uh, a total paradox. It would seem almost to be one term canceling out another, but not to the guy to whom form and function have disappeared, where form is far more important than function. Oh, sure. Uh, and so y you see it in, in the South, really, I suppose, more than any other place now at this point in America, although it's creeping into other areas. Uh, you find that, that, the, that the form of democracy is sustained. The function of democracy is abhorred. And that's uh, so you just ignore the, 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 the function of democracy. You, you concentrate on forms. If you notice how many people are much more concerned, you know, down south, believe me, hardly any school ever opens up without uh, pledging allegiance, without uh, talking uh, all nation under God, uh, we are all created indivisible. All, oh, boy, they make a big issue over form. Form is very important, particularly to a society where function has been lost. Form becomes more important. Have you noticed that Bond, a classic example again, have you noticed that Bond is in always exquisite form? He always picks the right wines. Uh, this guy always dresses sartorially magnificent. His form, he's always got the right car. And he always does the right things. But do you notice that the function of what he does, the, the things that Bond really does, is this the mind of a man with... Uh, with, uh, with taste? Oh, yeah? How many men with taste could, without so much as batting an eye, shoot a person right in the stomach, smile, and walk away? Even if it's an enemy. That's right. So you see, Bond is all form. And, and uh, if Bond, and, and one of the reasons why most of the intellectuals like Bond, you see, is because form is very important to an intellectual. Far more important often than function. In fact, function can be a drag. And, and I have gone to many meetings of, of intellectual type people who are talking about, say, such things as democracy and race and all that thing. And they'll yell and holler and, oh boy, they'll get mad at this group and they'll get mad at that group. And I notice that, the, that there's nobody in the, in the room that's colored. It's very interesting. And now they don't do that purposely. <laughs> it's just the way they work. It's just the way it works out. Now, now, in the case of form and function, you'll find this very true in, in, uh, in areas of, uh, of, of art. And Bond has to be con considered part of our art world. Art, anything that is, is an abstract uh, concept, an abstract filigree on the actual basic uh, structure of life. What is art, after all? And so when you watch Bond, remember this, though, that one of the things that, that um, anthropologists always do, and archaeologists... They judge a civilization by the things that 
provided that civilization its lighter moments. They genuinely do. And uh, they will judge a civilization by these things. And, and our civilization has to be ultimately judged by the Bond movies. Uh, because these are, these are things which have somehow struck a great chord among millions of people. And, I'm, and I don't want to sound like a square, you know, out of it, totally unhit, and all the rest of it, just because I'm talking about this, because you often do, you know. And I think one of the reasons why large numbers of people who think about these things, and I'm not talking about the professional antis, you know, the blue-nosed type people, which I am not, uh, I think they're all afraid to say these things, because ultimately that will cast them into outer darkness. And they will find they're, quote, not with it, they're not in, they're not the in-world. Uh, you understand, of course, during the days of the decline of Rome, the society of inness was very big. They had more in circles than you could shake a stick at. Have you ever read The Decline and Fall of Rome? Well, that's what began to happen at the end of the Roman world. Have you noticed that there's a lot of talk in today's society about in and out, what's in, what's out, who's in, who's out? This is a wonderful sign of the final decline. Just the very term, in and out, is anti-democratic. Think about it for a minute. The very term, in and out, is anti-democratic. And yet, the people who are in and out, the people who talk about the in-world, are generally people who make a big flap about civil rights. Fascinating problem. <laughs> there is that... There's that uh, contradiction again, where form and function have ceased to uh, march the same line. Where, uh, where f we, are, we are truly beginning to develop an aristocratic society, in and out. And uh, it has a little, little to do with democracy, very little. And now, you can have different types of non-democratic society. You can have one that's based on bloodlines, in other words, the blooded aristocracy of the old uh, French uh, succession or the English succession but then you have the aristocracy of the right school uh, the right part of the country for example a man who was born in Boston is ten leagues ahead of a guy in the in and out league uh, than a man say born in Indianapolis it's the accident of birth just like the accident of birth and that's the best kind of aristocracy the accident of being born as the son of one of the Louis was the best kind of accident to have, you see. Because then a man can be totally superior. He had nothing to do with this, you know, after all. <laughs> That's part of the in and out scene. And so, so it, gets, it gets more involved and complicated as you get, get into the uh, form and the structure of uh, form versus structure. You better be careful, though, when you start advocating form over structure. You're advocating an old, old problem. You're advocating an old, old sickness, which uh, goes well deep in the gibbon. Now, one more thing I must say. It's fun to decline. Remember that, friends. <laughs> I'm sorry that it was a lot of fun to be in Rome at the days when it was falling. And uh, people often confuse fun with goodness. They often confuse fun with rightness. And so, let's face it, it's fun to be in England today as England slowly sinks uh, into a vinyl wave of uh, shrieking men. It finally sinks below the sea. Oh, no, England is not going to disappear with a bang or a whimper. It might disappear with a high-pitched giggle or possibly a limp wrist. 
And uh, I suspect that they ain't the only ones that are going down that way. But that's all part and part. And I, I realize, of course, that this show has made me forever part of the great outer darkness. Forever part of the outworld. And I'll never again, never again, get an engraved invitation on a limp piece of suede leather to Cheetah. Never again. Ah, hail and farewell, O civilization. Hail and farewell. Oh, in the Beatles we trust.